Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. If you're a sales letter looking to take your leadership to a whole new level, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be exploring tips, techniques, and strategies to help you take your leadership to the exceptional level and allow you to enjoy more money, more meaning, and better sales results. Alrighty, welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Leader Podcast. Darren Mitchell here on a beautiful sunny day here in Melbourne, but uh, we're not here to talk about the weather. I have another beautiful guest on the podcast today, uh, Holly Proctor from Clary, Senior Vice President and Global Head of Sales from Clary, all the way from San Francisco in California. Holly, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. Hi, Darren. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, excited to spend some time together. Awesome. Now we're going to talk all things sales and sales leadership. And we've had a bit of a brief talk just before we press the record button. And uh, we've kind of said we have no idea where this interview is going to go. And that's the style of this podcast. Um, I have literally no notes. So we're just going to see where we go. Great. Awesome. So I hope you're okay with that. Uh, sounds awesome. Yes. Thank what you I... for not sending me questions in advance, which means like I don't know what's going to come up and we'll talk about all the good stuff. It'll be perfect. Oh, cool. Well, yes. that's a, that that might be a bit of feedback for me in terms of sure. getting better as an interviewer. Getting, no, getting some better. free questions. In. No, it means we're going to get to the heart of some real stuff, and it'll just be you know our honest, uh, real read of what's going on. So I love it. Love it. I, I like to think about this as a fireside chat. So it's yeah. um it's a Perfect. conversation between two people who are passionate about sales and sales leadership. So Holly, um, love to get a sense. I ask this of all our guests as well, just to get a bit of a background and set the context for the listeners. Um, sure. Can you? We've only got like fifty minutes to talk, right? So, uh, can you give us a bit of background on Holly Proctor and the Holly Proctor story, and what's led you to now be in such a um, such a senior position at Clary? Sure. Um, so yeah, Holly Proctor, uh, lead our global sales team at Clary. And, um, <clears throat> I started, it's, it's probably important for me to start the story in, uh, that I'm from Nebraska. Do you even know where that is, Darren? Nebraska is in the States. Now, is that North of where you are? Okay. Um, Nebraska is the middle of the United States. When people say the Midwest, it is the smack dab middle between the coasts. A lot of people refer to it as the flyover states. Ah, okay. um, you wouldn't really ever stop there. You just sort of fly over it. So farming community, zero tech software wasn't a word. I think I learned until I was in my twenties and, uh, you know, like not a thing. It wasn't part of the industry. It was all around, you know, farming and other, and other things. And so, uh, I was exposed to San Francisco, um, and fell in love with it and was sort of San Francisco or bust. And so after I went to undergraduate and grad school, uh, I said, you know, sort of San Francisco or bust and, um, moved out here in my early twenties and started my career in consulting. And the reason why I started my career in consulting um, is it had a broad, I didn't really know exactly what I, what I, wanted, what I wanted to do. And so it was a yeah. broad range of exposure. And so you sort of got to try on a bunch of different roles, which I highly recommend. Um, and there were a couple of things from my experience in consulting that I've still, you know, uh, you know take with me today. Uh, one of which is we had the strategy of fewer, larger relationships. And so like this mm -hmm. deep investment of learning a, a client inside and out, what makes them tick, what makes them tick walking the halls. And one of the greatest honors was to get a badge, which is like, you just showed up so much that they gave you a badge and allowed you to like stay in the building. Uh, so, <laughs> you become one uh, of them almost. You sort of become one of them. You get a desk, you know, maybe even you get an email address. 
Um, you know, it really like it feels like you're in it. And so it was such a good lesson for me as a salesperson. You know, how do you sort of think like a duck, walk like a duck? Uh, and so you're so much better positioned to sell something impactful to them if you really know what problems they're trying to solve. And yeah. the way that you really know what problems they're trying to solve is to get in their shoes. And so uh, exceptional experience um, in consulting. But I was in San Francisco working in consulting, not in tech, which is, you know, a terrible idea. I was like, why don't I go like do the thing that everyone's doing around here that feels like the cool thing to do. And so uh, I followed a, a leader over to LinkedIn and then uh, and LinkedIn was a blast. Uh, I was there for six years, uh, led teams of all different sizes and all different customers in, in several different business lines, our talent solutions business, and then helped uh, be part of the founding leadership team in our sales solutions business. And um which is now a billion in revenue. And so, you know, just an incredible time at LinkedIn started pre-IPO, exited, and we were owned by Microsoft. And so, you know, you see the whole range of evolution from company size that felt sort of young, scrappy to, uh, you know, big corporate and, uh, you know, printing cash. And so uh, learned a ton around leadership at LinkedIn. Um, and then also just around culture. How do you inspire a team of people to, to perform, uh, you know, to work together? Together and collaborate. What's the culture that you build that truly is a differentiator? Mm. Um, <clears throat> so after six years at LinkedIn, went to WeWork, and uh, WeWork was wild uh, for lots of reasons. Um, I don't know if you followed any of the WeWork. Did you watch any of the documentaries or anything? I've seen a little bit. Yeah, not a lot though. Okay, so uh, you know WeWork is crazy. Obviously, they raised billion. They were valued for uh, you know at the high, they were the highest valued uh, private company when I started at twenty seven billion dollars, and um, you know lots of change in valuation over the two years that I was there. But um, basically, if if we were or if LinkedIn was teaching me how to be a leader in peacetime, uh, WeWork was teaching me how to be a leader in in wartime, and so. <laughs> Uh, you know, tons of change, huge amounts of investment from, um, you know, from SoftBank and then uh, weathering failed IPOs and then enormous amounts of layoffs. Um, yeah. And so I uh, learned a ton of that experience too. One of the things I loved about LinkedIn that I was eager to go back to is I was selling into sales leadership. So uh, the audience you and I love, uh, that was my prospect. And so yeah. I was just hanging out with uh, other sales leaders on the regular, telling them about how we could impact their world. And um, so I love selling to the audience and I was really eager to get back into it, which is what brought me to Clary. And so, you know, so much uh, investment in sales tech right now, the sales tech ecosystem is blown up and uh, it's been awesome to be back into the center of it. So awesome. that's my question. Great story. Now, what's really intriguing about all that, and I noticed on your LinkedIn profile, you talk about the fact that you jumped into sales by design and not by accident. Now, I, in the paper and my, I'm, I'm kind of the same, although I fell, I fell into sales based on what I saw salespeople do and what sort of perks they had and long lunches and back in the day playing golf, et cetera. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that in terms of, um, you moved from consulting into tech, but what was it about selling in particular that led you to make a conscious decision to move into that path? Yeah. Um, I fell in love with sales. I was just sort of exposed to sales in college. Um, I worked for our university actually. And um, one of the things that I was doing is we had an asset, which was our campus rec center. And then we had an audience, which is 
the student body. And we were trying to figure out how we monetize those two things. And so um, we hosted this event called Get Wrecked. And it was basically like every student could come to the rec center and a, all the businesses in town would come in and set up a booth and they would give out, if you were in a restaurant, you'd give out free samples. If you were whatever, you know, you sort of exposed your product to the student body who was going to be spending a lot of money around campus. Right. And so um, the business paid us and uh, obviously we gave them access to the student body and we made a lot of money and um, it was um, a really creative way to, you know, create a marketplace uh, to, um, you know, to invent um, a, a new experience for uh, for these marketers and people who are trying to get their product in front of in front of someone. And I just fell in love and got addicted to uh, the potential of someone saying yes. And like the so I was the one that sold all the, uh, you know, all the partnerships. And so I went out to all the businesses around town. I was trying to sell them, you know, our asset in this case, you know, the student body. And I was just, um, I just fell in love. There was no turning back for me. It was every no fueled me more and more. And, you know, I reflected deeply on every no, which is like, I never hated the buyer. I always felt like I didn't, I felt a difference in myself when I nailed the pitch yeah. And like the response from the prospect. And so it was just this like challenge with myself of, you know, what could I do to get to a win? And I just got like wildly competitive as most salespeople are. And, you know, just like really fueled my success. And then, you know, on top of that, that wasn't even like a good, I didn't even have a good sales comp plan then, right? That was like sort of pre real life. Like once I got a real sales comp plan, I was like, holy shit, you can make a ton of money if you're good. <laughs> um and so, you know, I, I just got really addicted to the concept of paying for performance, that the more you do, um, the more you make. And, you know, it's funny, I'm married to a pilot and um, my husband, like, if you're the best pilot in the world, you make, yeah. the, you make the same as the worst pilot in the world. And that yeah. is like something I could never get behind. And yeah. so um, I, I just, uh, you know, fell in love with, with what we do. And so when you look at that early sales, because I'm going to ask you the question around how you how you brought that sales experience into consultancy because a lot of consultants don't necessarily sell it, um, start out with a sales sort of mindset. But I'm also going to, I'm also conscious of and curious around, did you have a role model in those early days when you were setting up all these partnerships or was it simply through trial and error and the fact that you had passion about what you did? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. I haven't thought about this in a long time. Um, you know, it's been 20 years, but my boss at the time, his name is Mark Powell. And I went with him everywhere. I was his little sidekick and um, he was exceptional. Uh, like one, an amazing human being, which is a really good place to start. Yeah. Um, and so if you start with being an amazing human being, the odds are that you're probably going to be somebody that people trust. And um, let's not forget how important trust is in building a relationship and building, you know, sales partnership. You want to believe that the thing I'm telling you is true. And so, um, you know, that's important. So amazing human being who had a ton of hustle. And, um, you know, so I, I got exposed to his hustle, which was like, you know, he was picking up the phone and he was like with me every day, picking up the phone, trying to get somebody to take a call. And then we would just go out around town together and drop in at different businesses looking for sponsorships. And the other thing that I learned from Mark is um, he got really creative. And so in the event that we, especially in our first year, I was with, I was with him for three, I think three years doing Get Wrecked. And mm -hmm. in the first year, we were just trying to stand it up. Uh, we just needed to fill the building. Right. And yeah. so we're like, we can't, we can't attract a student body if there's nothing, if there's no booths, you know? So like, how do we just fill the building? Yeah. And so 
um, he did a lot of creative trade deals. So, you know, he would, you know, figure out ways that we could trade. So what else could we do? He would like put up, um, you know, banners in the gym and get like free exposure for, you know, local, local restaurants and such. And so he just got creative in the way that we could get a partnership done. And so I, I learned a lot from him on, you know, how to get creative, how to hustle. Um, and yeah, I guess he was the first person, uh, I, I really learned from, and, uh, I think of him often. Love it. Love it. And as you made the transition into consulting, consulting, um, how many of those skills did you feel maybe, and maybe this is only in retrospect, as you, as you look through hindsight, how many of those sort of skills did you take into that consultancy phase? Because you did mention before getting a badge and, and, and that basically is, is a result of being, being trusted by that organization. How many of those skills did you, did you end up using in the consultancy yeah. So what, you know, what Darren's referring to is, uh, you know, in our last chat, we were talking about um, when you are in consulting, you're selling one of this, you know, the distinguished honors is to get a badge at the company that you're consulting for is that you're just around enough, you know, you're rocking the halls and you get a badge and uh, you maybe get a desk and maybe you get an email address and you feel like one of them, you know, and uh, the thing I was referencing is, you know, that's such an honor because feeling like one of them gives you deep, deep exposure to their problems that they're trying to solve. And mm -hmm. you're sort of walking like a duck, quacking like a duck. And so you can get exposure to the things that they're trying to solve, which makes you just a 10x better salesperson. You mm -hmm. know, if you're going to go pitch something um, that it's actually going to resonate and solve a problem because you've been in their shoes. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, when you think about uh, the things for Mark that maybe are translated into my time in consulting, um, certainly the hustle. Um, it was 2008 by the time I finished my time there. So it was another recession. And, um, you know, when we were in the recession, you know, it was obviously the thing I was selling was I worked for Gallup and uh, we were selling human um, uh we're selling basically surveys in two ways. You're we selling sure. employee engagement surveys and you were yeah. selling, um, you know, marketing surveys. And so um, how did you get information from a customer on, you know, their experience with your brand? And so um, both of those pieces of information are nice to know. They're not, they aren't like critical. And so in a recession, they are things that might be easy to cut. And so uh, the two things around uh, hustle and creativity in a recession are things I'm really glad I had to lean on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because when you talk about WeWork, you said um, learning, learning, what, what was the term you use? You're learning how to lead in a war versus leading in peacetime at LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn was uh, was peacetime. WeWork was wartime. <laughs> it's easy to be a good leader when like everyone's winning, you know? Um, oh, it's, it's it's like the old fair weather, fair weather leader, right? It's easy yeah. to like, and in, and in front, everything's working beautifully. All the orders are coming in. You don't have to work really hard. It's when yeah. things turn to the proverbial that the, the good quality people stand up and they're the ones that will actually get the results. Right. You know, there's so much to take from that and the environment we're in right now. You know, obviously macro is brutal and there's not a software company right now that isn't struggling with it. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, lots of lots of headwinds. And so I would challenge, you know, your audience and all of my friends that I'm talking to about this right now is to like really take stock of the way their leaders are showing up in this environment, because yeah. it should tell you whether or not you want to persevere with them. You know, do you want to spend the next several years with them, you know, because uh, they're the types of leaders that are showing up to problem solve together, you know, yeah. to weather the storm together is, are you noticing a culture of a, you know, a blaming if so, yeah. like, 
you know, when, when things go south, that ends up happening, right? And so uh, it's a good time to take stock of the quality of the people you've got around you. Absolutely, which is a beautiful segue into another couple of topics that I know you're really passionate about, and that is career development, career planning, and also motivating salespeople. Um, one of the things that I'm really big at on is, and I did this when I was in corporate as well, is trying to create an environment where people are inspired to do their best work yeah. and how we as leaders can help furnish that environment without without being micromanagers, without being you know over the top and saying, you must hit this, this quota in this time. Uh, it's all important, but let's just talk through about the importance, particularly in times like now, because you're mentioning it's a really difficult time for a lot of organizations around the world, and it's probably only get, going to get more difficult, which means the essence of a leader, and especially a sales leader, they have to really dig in and work out what do they stand for, what's important, and what is their team going to need over the next 12, 24, maybe even longer. So from a career planning point of view, particularly now, what's what are some of the key points that you're looking for and maybe what you're applying within Clariot right now that's helping people um, not so much feel comfortable about being in the position that they're in, but helping them develop, particularly in times of uncertainty? Yeah, for sure. Um, so this is tough. And there's a couple of permutations of the question that you've asked that seems to have resonated with my team. So I'll, I'll share here. Um, one is naturally when you don't have economic constraints and you're growing at a rate that you're excited about, you create more openings, right? There's more jobs. And so um, when there are more jobs, uh, that generally creates opportunity for the team, you know? And so uh, again, everyone's happy when you're winning. And so uh, that means they have an opportunity to get promoted. They take on more roles, probably faster than they're honestly ready for, but the, you know, this pace of growth requires it. And so it's a win-win for everyone. Awesome. We love that. That's not uh, the thing that exists all the time. So in a downturn, how do you manage a slowed pace of growth and the impact of you know someone's you know professional aspirations? Mm. And so if there's just not a job to be had, it is unlikely that you know you're going to get promoted, even though you might be ready. And so that's a tough thing for people to you know to swallow. And um, so here's some of the things I think that are important to keep in mind. Um, one, and this is true um, definitely for sellers and potentially for more junior sellers, is that the job isn't to shoot until you miss uh, or to shoot until you make it. It's to shoot until you can't miss. Mm. And so, you know, you might get lucky and get, you know, a great lead or, uh, you know, have a good win and you should totally celebrate that win. But the job isn't to do it once, right? Yeah. It's to do it over and over again until you can't miss. And so it's to create a repeatable process so that you've become an absolute expert at that thing, right? Yep. Is that you're so good, you can do it in your sleep. And doing it one time isn't so good that you could do it in your sleep, right? You have to create a pattern. And yep. so I think that's something that's super important to keep in mind is that you will get, you know, sort of a junior rep that closes a big deal and they're like, see, I'm ready. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, I'm worthy. I, I am so glad that we've got this deal in and I'm so pumped for you. And now I need you to do it 10 more times, you know, and. Uh, but, but, but Holly, I am, I am the, I am, look what I've done. Right. Surely, yeah. surely I get a promotion based on this. Yes. And so I think that notion of like, you know, you don't shoot until you make it, you shoot until you can't miss. And, and it's the difference of like, 
of, um, you know, getting lucky versus becoming an expert. And so, um, you know, and where there's no shadow of doubt and, you know, we're all in sales, there's different ways you might win a deal. We have all had the luxury of bluebirds, thank God, because sales is hard. And so you need some good sales karma every once yeah. in a while to come your way. Uh, and Absolutely. so it's not to, dis to, to dispel the fact that that all matters. Every dollar counts. It's just that um, you want to be bulletproof. And in order to be bulletproof, you have to have done it many times. And so I think like that foundation matters. And, and with that, what I'm hearing is, and this is off, I found out myself is as a sales leader, we have to not get caught up in the emotion of that big deal. And I guess over, uh, the word's not overcompensate, but over, um, over, what's the word? Um, give, give platitudes or, or fake yeah. platitudes to the person to yeah. say, oh, fantastic. It's, hey, this is fantastic, but the mark of a great salesperson, the mark of an exceptional salesperson is sustainability, replicability. So do it over. So you need to be consistent, which means you need to be patient. Yeah, it's such a good point. Um, you know, how do you, as sales leaders, especially good sales leaders, you have this bias to celebrate because closing a deal is hard, especially, you know, uh, sometimes you battle a renewal and on a renewal, you might have some churn and that still might be the win given the circumstance. That's and it. on the new logo side, you know, the same thing might be true where it's like, you know, there's, you get a deal that's smaller than you anticipate, but there was tons of friction. And so like mm -hmm. just winning matters. And so there's a lot of circumstance. I think, you know, we, we naturally celebrate being able to win in spite of challenge. Yeah. Um, but it is in your best interest as a sales leader that have hungry sales reps to continue to remind them of areas where they could have done better. And I think yeah. the other thing that's true is winning the deal is not an end outcome because there's lots of different ranges or scenarios of you know how you might win. You might win a deal for 100K, but because of misses you had in the process, you might have left on the table another 100K, right? Yeah. And so the actual opportunity was 200K and you got mm -hmm. half of it. And so congrats on the deal, but like, if you would have done X, Y, and Z, we would have doubled the deal that was on the table. And so I think part of it is, you know, you've got a deal in hand. You don't want to beat them up. They did just do the thing you asked them to do, but uh, ensuring that they understand the complete picture, which is if yeah. you can nail X, Y, or Z, the next time an opportunity like this shows up for you, your deal is going to be twice the size. And the role of the sales leader in that, in that particular scenario is, is critical because sometimes that sales rep might get really, really happy with the fact they've got a $100,000 deal and ignore the fact that they've missed some blatant opportunities, which if they developed a high level of conscious competence, they could have actually converted 100% more of what that was. And yet they think, hey, I'm a great sales rep. Therefore, I deserve to be given this promotional opportunity. That's right. And, you know, one of the things I think that's really important for a sales leader, of course, you care about the rep and the individual and their career and all that. The other thing as a business leader is you can't really afford to lose too many, uh, you know, to half too many deals, right? And so if you don't take the opportunity to, you know, course correct on some of that behavior, you are missing an opportunity to drive revenue for your company. And so uh, it's a missed opportunity on both fronts. Yeah, absolutely. Which kind of begs a question then from a from a motivational point of view, and I'm I'll be interested in your take on this because often when I'm working with sales teams, they say, "Oh, one of the biggest challenges I've got is I've got to constantly motivate my sales team." I said, "Really? You find yourself having to motivate sales people? What have you not heard of this thing called intrinsic motivation? <laughs> right? Right? You can only give so many platitudes and so many extrinsic sort of things. You know, the number one salesperson for the year will go to 
we'll go to Hawaii for a, for a weekend, you know, the top salespeople. What's your, particularly in a situation like we're moving into, where it is going to be tougher for sellers because a lot more buyers are being a lot more stringent with how they're using their funds. Um, mm. Your thoughts on motivating salespeople, because I've got specific thoughts, but I'd, I'd love your take because you're a very experienced sales leader um, on this concept of, of motivating salespeople. Sure. Um, well, first, I really resonate with what you said. Uh, like, you know, the, how much motivation do the best really need? Um, I, t- I totally hear you. I also think, you know, even the best tennis players, even the best golfers, you know, they have a coach, mm. right? And like they're a 10x better golfer or a tennis player than them, but they have a coach for a reason. And part of it is emotional, you know, yeah. is that, you know, we do go through these as athletes, uh, sales athletes, you know, we do go through these peaks and valleys and, you know, you, you sometimes need the hype man in your corner that sort of says like, you've got this when you're down and can pick you up and, you know, so the role in that scenario. So how do you think about, um, what that looks like? So I'll start with, and this is probably where you're going is, uh, there is no question. The most important decision you make as a leader is the quality of the team that you build. And so if you build a bunch of people that do have uh, hustle and intrinsic motivation, um, you know, then this isn't the thing you're not trying to like, uh, motivate them to do more. And oftentimes, you know, you're trying to ensure that, uh, they create balance in their life because they work too hard, right. You're trying to ensure that they don't beat themselves up too much when they lose, right. You're playing a different role because there's no way you could probably motivate them more than, you know, the, the way that they, you know, just naturally drive, uh, drive themselves. And so I think that's really important. So hiring, no question, number one, most important thing that accounts for 90% of your success or failure. So let's assume, you know, you've brought on the right people and you've got people that are, you know, super motivated. Then it's, you know, how do you, what are the things that you can do to support them and drive their motivation? Um, one is, uh, and this is sort of in good times, is uh, helping them reach uh, reach milestones. So I had a rep um, last year who, our number one performing rep, um, you know, she was already crushing her number. And so we started to focus on other milestones that would be uh, important to her and to the company. And so one of them was logo count. So she got to 18 logos in a year, which was huge for her and, uh, and for the company. And it was record setting. And so when I say record setting is, you know, it's really interesting to go back and review, you know, your stats as a company. Um, what is, you know, obviously the easiest ones are largest deals, uh, quickest deal or, you know, fastest deal, um, best price per user, uh, looking at, um, most number of logos sold, right. What are the milestones in your company and who's next to break them? And there's something pretty cool about setting a new standard for a company that is already crushing it, you know? And so that was something we focused on is like, is a lot is, you know, what's the milestone you need to get to, to, you know, beat the record and no one's broken it since. And so like, that's cool. And it's something that you can hang your hat on, which is awesome. Uh, in the alternative view, which is, you know, you're not crushing it and you're trying to keep your, you know, your head held high is, uh, I do think you need to move the goalposts. And, you know, if you think about hitting your number as most salespeople's North Star, right, is like, I want to hit my number. It's the thing I care most about. And then you look at this year and you're like, even if I did every single thing right and I worked every waking second, there's no shot. 
you know, yeah. like all the, you know, everything around me suggests that like we're screwed, you know? And so what do I do? It yeah. could be super easy for you just to throw the towel in and say, you know, like this year's a wash, I'm out. And so motivating in that scenario, you know, takes a different skill set. And I think it requires uh, setting up small wins and help people, you know, helping people really focus on the inputs, not the outputs. If you can disconnect from the outcome and just say, I'm going to do everything I can to control the controllables. And if the revenue doesn't come, the revenue doesn't come, but at least it won't come on my behalf, right? At least I will have, be, I will be able to look my boss in the eye and say, you know, I've done everything I could possibly do to win this year. Yeah. And um, you know, that's sort of the person that I want to manage is the person that thinks that way and that drives their business that way. And, um, you know, it might mean that like, you know, you start focusing on meetings or you might start focusing on just response rate, um, right. And other things that, uh, you know, aren't directly tied to revenue, but that are inputs. Um, and so I'll, I'll share one more story on this, which is, uh, I had a conversation with my team this year on the concept of best effort. And it was, you know, you're trying to replan mid-year, you're trying to figure out what the right target is based on, you know, macro impact and nobody knows you're trying yeah. to do your best, but like, we can't predict the future. And so it's not that targets didn't matter. It's just that I didn't want them to focus on it. And uh, I wanted them to think about what is the best effort I can apply inside of, you know, the back half of the year in order to be proud of myself at the end. And so the, the, the analogy I likened it to was, um, you know, you're somebody that's a marathon runner and you qualified for Boston and you're super excited about the race and you know, you've been training for months and you show up and it starts to rain and you're at the starting line and it starts pouring. And your, your objective for the day is you wanted a new personal best. And so, uh, you know, you, you are pumped to break your record. You've been training to break your record and new personal best. And then when it starts pouring, it's, you change your objective, personal best when it's pouring down rain is no longer a reasonable goal, right? It. It's it, you have the conditions have materially changed. Yeah. And so therefore it's no longer personal best. It's how do you just finish? You know, how do you finish the race? Uh, how do you make sure you don't get injured? Right. And so that is what best effort looks like in those new conditions. You know, now that the conditions have changed and when you finish the race, let's say five minutes slower than, you know, your previous slowest time, nobody says like, Hmm, yeah, Darren's a I really lost it. Crappy runner. It's like, no, everyone knows it was pouring, you know? And so it's like you sort of know what you're up against. And then when the sky is clear, you try again. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And music to my ears because that's exactly my philosophy. And it's interesting how many sales leaders and companies I go into where that is not the philosophy. You mentioned something before in terms of having the having the ability to know that the targets are important, but then have the ability to disconnect from the, the, the relentless focus on that, which begs the question, because I know there's going to be people listening to this right now who are in a position where they're uh, coming to the end of the quarter, or in some cases, the end of the financial year, and they are behind. And they have senior leaders with the whip out, cracking them over the head. What is your gap closure strategy? You must close this gap or else. So to those guys, based on that philosophy and thinking longer term, because this is the infinite game, not the finite game, yeah, totally. um, what, do we, what do we do as sales leaders? How do we have those conversations with senior leaders to say, hey, we are making progress. It is not about, with respect, getting perfection. We're doing our best to get there, but we're looking at how we make progress because the thing we've got to think about is, and we'll talk about planning in a second, what we're doing now, if we don't hit our target for the end of the quarter, 
what what seeds are we planting for quarter one next year or quarter two next year? So how do we have these conversations with the senior leaders who just don't, some of them, with respect, just don't get it or they don't want to get it? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, it's interesting. I'll share a story um, about, I think it was a, it was Q2 board meeting this year. Um, you know, every company is taking a hit on top of funnel and on performance. And, um, you know, so obviously every magazine is writing about the pending, um, you know, macro impact and, uh, you know, is it the next great depression and how big is this recession going to be? And so like, that's the topic that's looming around the board meeting. And it would have been really easy to walk into, you know, the board meeting and say, you know, uh, we missed our number. Um, and, or whatever, right? And it, yeah. and in that scenario, every software company is thinking about how they potentially you know replan the business for the new set of circumstances. And what I really loved about our approach is, um, you know, we said, um, here's the things that we think we could do differently in order to bridge the gap or some of the gap. And uh, the focus wasn't just on blame, on like, oh, macro sucks. You know, it's like that is. Nobody wants to hear that. No senior leader wants to hear it. No board member wants to hear it. It's like, you know, in the spirit of controlling the controllables, are you telling me that you did every single thing right? And the only circumstance that was off was the macro? No mm. chance, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, you have to come with a point of view that's like, here are the things I'm going to own. And it's the concept of extreme ownership, you know? And yeah. uh, it's not necessarily saying you have to bridge the gap and that you can find a way you don't want to be unrealistic about what's possible, right? You're not a magician. Um, but, um, you know, you need to have a point of view on, um, on what you can, you know, realistically achieve. And, you know, it's, it's rooted, um, in, in the concept of we can always do something better. And so having, you know, being able to, you know, critically assess your performance and find areas of opportunity and then report back. And it was, you know, I mentioned our board conversation because it was such great feedback from our board who most of them sit on lots of other boards and mm. it was a theme from q2 that was sort of everyone was like macro 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 and it would be such a missed opportunity to not critically evaluate your business and uh you know take it as an opportunity to find out ways to uh, get creative yeah great answer and i think um if if more and more senior executives would take that approach you'd have a lot more environments that would be probably more creative because how much the implied pressure sits on the shoulders of the sales leaders that then passes that implied pressure onto the sales reps to close yeah. the gap, irrespective of what the macro says, right? We don't care. The number is the number. You must hit the number or else you're considered to be a failure, right? So, yeah. you know, when we talk about motivation of salespeople, you, it, you, can't, you can't motivate people with a, with a stick. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if we take responsibility and say, hey, the situation is what the situation is, but let's, as you said, control the controllables, right? What is it that you can do? What are the strategies you can put in place? And we may not get there, but guess what? We might be making progress to there, and that progress will give us a platform that when the macro does change, guess what? We're going to be in the best position to take advantage and get. we're probably going to be on the, on the front of the wave or the front of the curve, right? You know, the other thing you made me think of is... Um you know, is how important perspective is. And, um, you know, if you would, let's say you would have planned your year and you were planning for a hundred percent growth year over year and you fall at 80% growth. Um, There's a whole lot of companies that look at 80% growth and think like, holy shit, how do I get there? (laughs) Um, And so some perspective on like, uh, you know, you might've come shy of the number, 
Um, but what you still accomplished in the face of adversity is potentially still something to be very proud of, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, it's still driving you towards your ultimate objective mm. um, and, you know, revenue targets. And it, it may take you a little longer to get there, but it's still progress. Absolutely. And the thing, I think a lot of salespeople and maybe a lot of sales leaders also think about, hey, there's only one game that we have to win and we have to win. Now, I just thought about this analogy and I'm not, I'm not really, a, I used to be a golf addict and I used to love watching golf, right? If you think about a lot of the, the top golfers, there are a stack of players that play in the US PGA that are millionaires that never win. Yeah. But they're making progress. They're very good at what they do, but they ne- they're never winning tournaments. Yeah. And so, but they are still, they are still setting milestones. They've still got coaches. They're still making progress. They're still quote unquote successful. So when I think about that, there can only be one number one salesperson, right? Now, does that mean that every other salesperson in the team, in the business is not successful? No, but how do we, how do we set benchmarks for them? And this comes to planning. It comes to motivating your sales team. What's the reality? What's the platform for them right now? And what is was it? What is it they want to achieve? And how can I, as a sales leader, help facilitate that? And if they can become successful, maybe they're going to be a lot more successful than they would have been if they had been in any other organization. Yeah. So- yes. And a couple of comments on that. Um, my personal preference is I would always rather be um, a little fish in a big pond than the alternative. And so, you know, to your point is like, they want to play. Why do they stay? They could go to another league, uh, but they stay there because they want to play with the best in the world, right? They don't want it to be easy to win, right? They want it to be a challenge. And so they want to look around. And I feel this way in, in, you know, when you think about our day-to-days, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. If Mm. I'm the smartest person in the room, I need to go find a new room, right? And like, that isn't the, the level that I'm interested in being in and so i think that's a you know a big takeaway from what you just referenced too 100 100 now we're gonna we're gonna sort of um pivot a little bit because i do want to talk about sure. clary and and the work that you do because we did talk just before we press record um about the importance of deal inspection and i know that clary has um a great approach to that and it's probably one of the age-old challenges for many sales leaders in terms of uh forecasting committing uh and trying to get the salespeople to commit and turn that into booked revenue. <laughs> uh, particularly particularly in times like now, I think the inspection around deals is critical. Um, any any key bits of advice you give sales leaders right now in terms of um, what you do within Clary or you do as a sales leader when it comes to the salespeople, particularly as we get to the end of the calendar year, end of the quarter, uh, all these deals are apparently going to come over the line. We're going to close. Uh, what sort of process do you go through to inspect that? Are there any key bits of information you think, yep, this is what I do every single time? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, first I'll say it's awesome to be a sales leader in 2022. And the reason why that's true, even though, you know, despite macro is the technology that we have available to support us today is light years ahead of what we did even five years ago. The sales tech boom, um, you know, the the manager is really the beneficiary and the sales leader is the beneficiary and certainly the rep of, um, you know, that massive investment. You know, the 
the sales person or the sales, uh, you know, the sales function was probably one of the last functions to go through digital overhaul, right? Most other teams had, you know, tons of other tech dedicated to their efficiency. Now we finally do. And so there's so, there's a software for everything inside of sales today. If you want something, you know, to get more efficient or, uh, you know, more predictable, there's a, there's, you know, software for pretty much most of our workflows. And yeah. so it's awesome that you have technology today to lean into, to help uh, in this world. And so no question, you know, one of the things I appreciate most about um, deal inspection today is that we have software. Naturally, I'm leaning into Clary. And part of what I'm doing inside of Clary is pulling in a ton of signal. And so what I mean by signal is all the activity of all of my sales reps. And so yeah. I can see for every rep on my team, every single meeting they've had, I can see uh, every single outreach they've done, every time they've emailed, I can see all the responses from their prospects and customers, not just that there has been a response, but like I can eat, I can actually read the response. Sure. And so deal inspection today is so different than it used to be. Uh, first of all, what I'm not doing is you know, going in and having a conversation with a rep and asking them to give me the play-by-play -play of their last week. You know, tell me about every meeting you had, what happened, what were the next steps, like where I'm just sort of replaying the game film. It's like, that's not the area that I want to spend time. I want to find out how to get up to speed on what's going on. Um, but I want to spend time helping you figure out how to move the ball forward. Mm. Right. It's like, you know, how do we actually progress your deal, which is hopefully spent in the form of strategy, uh, yeah. not in the form of just, you know, play by play. And so leaders today, um, you know, particularly frontline managers can review all of the signal. And so they walk into a one-on-one -on -one educated, here's the progress that's happened, you know, over the last week with this rep and all the deals that they're managing. And so I know where there's risk, and I know where there's potential opportunity. And so you know, an example of risk could be they don't have a next meeting booked. Uh, yeah. An example of risk could be they've sent three emails and there's been no response, right? And so it's easy to instead say, give me all the, up to, uh, you know, all of the things that are uh, happening inside this account. Instead, you can say, I see you've reached out three times and they haven't responded. What do you think we can do to try to get them back engaged? Mm -hmm. That's a totally different framing for your one-on-one, -on -one, right? Oh, and so, um, and, and like as a seller, gosh, that's how I want to spend my time, you know? Yeah. And so uh, it's actually additive to me now, not just an administrative task to go in to spend time with my manager. And yeah. so, um, you know, that's such a huge part of uh, deal inspection today. And then, you know, you referenced, um, you know, especially with the economy today and macro, um, pipeline's hard to come by. And so we can't just like manage it uh, willy nilly, you know, it's like, it's not, there's not a lot of fish just like jumping in the boat. And so <laughs> you really got to make sure that, you know, the pipeline you have is managed with care and that you don't, you know, uh, you know, you don't miss any opportunity to uh, engage the prospect and move into your next stage. And so, um, you know, that's part of it is that you're protecting the pipeline that you have. And it's an interesting point around pipeline because uh, I've, I've come from a world where you had to, had to hard KPI manage three times target as a rolling pipeline in a 90 day cycle. But what they didn't start to measure is they didn't do the forensic deal investigation in terms of how qualified are these? Uh, what's the conversion rate? Because I've got a client who's got an 85% closure rate or, or conversion rate. And he was asking a question around um, a pipeline in terms of, should I have a KPI three times? Because at the moment, it's only one, one point something times current target. And I said, well, what's your conversion rate? And he came back and said, it was 85%. I said, you don't have a problem, right? You do not have a problem. Because the last thing you want to do, and this comes to deal inspection as well, is get your sales reps to put in fluffy opportunities that you know are not going to come, but right. it appeases the business. It's like, oh, we've got this big pipeline. So thinking about what you just talked about in terms of what are some of the signals, because one of the one of the challenges that I had 
as a sales leader because I didn't have access to all of this technology we now do. And it was almost like I'm taking, and I, and I had this as, a, as an example, I was taking what the sales rep was saying as gospel that this was going to close because we have a great relationship. And it was based yep. on relate, and I, I didn't have the tools, the forensic tools, to actually ask how how likely is this to close? What's the compelling event? Do they have budget? All that's all I didn't have the data, so it was really difficult to give the forecast. So deal inspection is such a critical thing. Well, so, something that's been really hard in this environment um, that I think a lot of my peers are recognizing and, and is um, people that used to have authority. You know, if you if you look at BANT as something you might reference, right, uh, budget authority need and timeline. And if you look at authority, somebody that used to have authority to be able to get a deal, deal done might no longer have authority to get a deal done. And they may or may not even know it. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like the you have this budget, Darren, it's yours. Mm. But then you go to get a deal done and see if I was like, nope. Uh, and in any normal environment that might've been yours, right. And you would have had no issue, you know, signing that agreement, but either your threshold for spend has increased or, you know, there's tightening across the board. And so in that case, like the sales rep might've done a really good job identifying that Darren has authority, but actually like Darren doesn't even know that Darren doesn't have authority. And so, (laughs) you know, is like, CFO is involved in, you know, nearly all purchasing either, either, you know, front facing or behind the scenes and, uh, and they're doing their job, which is, you know, protecting uh, financial risk and exposure to the company. And so that means, you know, you, but you should anticipate that you're going to have, you know, the office of the CFO involved in some way, and you're going to have to justify, you know, with a strong business case. Absolutely. Now, as we as we wrap up, I know you've got a hard hard finish in a couple of minutes. So, um, I just wanted to get some thoughts from you as we come towards the end of December, end from any end of financial year. Some thoughts around planning and the importance of planning, uh, particularly as we look into the twenty twenty three calendar and for some the twenty twenty three fiscal fiscal year. So, any any key points that you're looking at as a senior executive within Clary around planning that might be able to help the listeners. Yeah, sure. A, a couple comments. Um, one of the things I think that is most important um, and is the job of the senior leader when you think about planning is ensuring that even if you're not growing and arguably even more if you're not growing and by growing, I mean adding headcount, not, so, not necessarily yeah. growing revenue, but um, that you are putting your people to their highest and best use. And so, you know, if you're going to spend a dollar on something that that is the best possible use of that dollar. And so, um, you know, really evaluating your headcount and ensuring that it's in the position that's required to extract the most amount of growth. Um, And so, you know, examples of that might be segment shifts, right? Moving headcount. You notice that your enterprise segment, you know, absolutely crushed next year or last year, but, you know, your mid-market team struggled. Is like, do you need to, you know, move some headcount around in order to support that, you know, that theme and that trend and maximize the opportunity to have an enterprise given you have to bridge the gap from mid-market. And so that's some of the stuff that I think is really important, highest and best use of your headcount. The next thing I think is true is some orgs I've seen, you know, plan in silos. So you might plan, um, you know, for one team and not another. Something I really appreciate about the way Clary plans is a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. It's Clary has the same amount of dollars that are going to be put to, uh, you know, their highest best use. And so, you know, if, you know, we need to make trade-offs and it might just, it might not just be trade-offs in, you know, my team, but trade-offs between me and marketing, right. Is could we put that dollar, you know, if I might be able to fund a headcount and that same amount of spend might be able to, you know, go towards, uh, you know, Google campaign, uh, which one do we think is going to produce the higher return? And so even though it's not my potential budget, it's a decision made across 
you know, from cross departments in order to make sure that we put our dollars to our best use, which is essentially the job of planning. Yeah, absolutely. And the key, the key message there is um, plan. Yeah. <laughs> plan yeah. because as, as John Maxwell says, one of the key things around a leadership responsibility is to identify what reality looks like right now. Yeah. And so whatever reality is, <clears throat> whether you talk about we need to allocate some resources into a mid-market versus into the enterprise, just determine what reality is because that becomes the platform and plan from there. Um, and that sets yourself up for hopefully a successful year, at least the opportunity to have a successful year. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So Holly, hey, I know you've uh, you got about two minutes before you have to run out the door. May I say thank you for uh, thank you for jumping on the podcast. You've shared a heap of gold, uh, and I'm sure that and it's great that it, it's it's good to speak to somebody from the other side of the world who also <laughs> thinks the same way in terms of the philosophies around sales and sales yeah. leadership. So <laughs> I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time and for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Darren. All the best. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. I trust the information in this episode has been helpful in your journey towards becoming exceptional. And remember, please take the time to rate the show, subscribe to the show so other people can find it. But also, if I can help you, jump on my calendar, go to leadwithdarren.com and let's have a conversation about how I can help you along your journey to being exceptional.